Rocco is sleeping. You can't see it. But Estella's little boy is right here. He's sleeping in the pew. And I was thinking, we better not be very loud, because this could be very, you know, traumatic for him to wake up and not know what's going on. He should be at kids' church, you know? But the reason he's sleeping, I know why he's sleeping. It's the same reason why my kids uh, slept about two hours last night and are about to crash later today. And it is because of what? Halloween. Thank you very much. How many of you had a very bad night's sleep last night? Not so bad. Okay. Maybe I'm just the only one that gives my kid candy on Halloween, apparently. My kids woke up at like quarter to six today, which of course also the, you know, standard time and all that kind of stuff, but it was the candy, right? It was, they had insomnia. They were, they, they couldn't sleep. They were jittery. They were moving around and, uh, I snuck a few pieces, but I still, I still crashed pretty good, you know? But, uh, every once in a while, we have uh, insomnia at the Anderson home. Uh, and when we do, you know, our kids resort to different things to deal with sleeplessness. Uh, Mallory, she's got uh, her thumb. She is a thumb sucker. And she, you'll find her just totally sucking away on that thumb to try and soothe herself and go to sleep. Uh, Bennett, he has uh, blue and yellow. Uh, which are two blankets. I'm sure he's going to love this one day that I'm sharing all these things. Two blankets, uh, you, you can guess the colors, blue and yellow. And without, w- with those, he can sleep like a baby. But without them, he'll be up all night long. Amelia, our youngest, so she, she can sleep anywhere with an airplane going through. She's like spread eagle, you know, like starfish on the bed. Just always conked out. My wife... She's not here today, so I can uh, pick on her a little bit. My wife, she normally sleeps like a champ, except in the times that in the past when we were pregnant. When we were pregnant, my wife would have the darndest time sleeping. She would struggle. She would toss and turn until she found the solution. And uh, it was, well, it was what we term her man pillow. This pillow, and I'm not exaggerating, it started here and it extended all the way to about here, friends. It was long and skinny and she would wrap it around her body and her belly and so she could get comfortable and basically I was pushed off the bed in in these evenings. But my wife had her man pillow when she was pregnant and that's how she got to sleep. Well... Why am I talking about uh, sleeplessness and insomnia? Well, it's because in Esther chapter 6, King Xerxes, or King Ahasuerus, his Hebrew name, is going to be dealing with a sleepless night. And he, like my daughter's thumb and my son's two blankets and my wife's man pillow, he, the king, is going to be looking for a way to resolve his sleeplessness. And what he chooses to resolve his sleepless night is an interesting choice because it leads to a major turn of events in the book of Esther. The title of this message today is Insomnia and God's Irony. Insomnia and God's Irony. Esther chapter 6. Stand if you are able to stand and let's read from Esther chapter 6. We're going to read 1 through 9, but we'll uh, study through the end of the chapter today. Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book 
of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this, for reporting this? And the king's servants who attended the king said, Well, nothing, nothing has been done for him. Verse 4, So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. He had entered to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that had been prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there in the court, standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and this horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor and then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, great idea. Hurry, take the robe and, oh, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going too far. I said I was going to go to verse 9. My bad. Have a seat, have a seat. I don't want to give it away. Oh, I had it here in bold letters. Stop at verse 9. Must be the insomnia. Verse 1 again. That night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written, a story that Mordecai had told of Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king has insomnia. The king cannot sleep. He's having a restless night. And I know for those of you, I mean, I, we were joking about insomnia, but for those of you who have it, it's, a, it's an awful thing. Goodness. Um, for those that deal with uh, restlessness or insomnia of any kind, it, it, can, it can be debilitating, actually. Um, I know some uh, who, you know, try and do everything under the sun to try and cure it. Uh, from medication to, you know, counseling to kind of ease anxiety. But uh, it's not a fun, fun thing to go through, this insomnia. It's something that can really uh, send someone into a state of uh, real confusion and frustration. The king is going through a very difficult night, and he wants it to be over. And so as the king, he's able to, you know, call upon whatever he wants to call upon to, uh, to entertain himself or to put himself to sleep. And he thinks, well, what better way to put my mind at ease than to have someone read to me all the great things that I've done. And so he calls for the book of the records of the Chronicles, a book that's also mentioned in chapter 2 and then also later on in chapter 10 of this uh, book of Esther. Not to be confused with the 
Bible book chronicles. This would have been Xerxes' book of chronicles of his deeds and acts as king, along with perhaps other Persian kings before him. And among the selections chosen to be read, the king's servant read the story of how Mordecai, the Jew, exposed the murderous plot of two of the king's guards. Now you might recall this story. It was at the end of Esther chapter 2 where Mordecai, it's kind of a random story. It's just kind of inserted there at the end of chapter 2. And you might think, well, that's kind of strange. It's kind of out of context, out of the blue. Well, here in chapter 6, we learn why the author of Esther chose to insert the story into chapter 2. Take a look at verse 3. Then the king said, well, well, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servant who attended him said, nothing. Nothing's been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. What honor has been bestowed on Mordecai? The king obviously is expecting an affirmative answer. It's, it was common for Persian kings and kings of the ancient Near East in that day, you know, and when someone would, well, do something good for them, but let alone save their life, obviously the king would have a vested interest in honoring that person and in, in recognizing that person for their good deed. Surprisingly, Xerxes had forgotten to honor Mordecai. The servant reports, well, sir, nothing has been done for him. And this has been many years now since that act. Xerxes' next question, by the way, is a really peculiar one if you think about it. I mean, those of you who are, you know, pay attention, you're paying attention to the story, you're paying attention to context, you're, you're following it, you're tracking with it. Look at this next question. The king asks, who is in the court? This question seems very out of place here. It should strike you as strange. Weren't we just talking about how Mordecai has not been honored? And now the king wants to know who's out in the courtyard? Is his attention span that short? <laughs> that he just kind of, who's in the court? I want to honor Mordecai. Who's in the court again? Or has he grown disinterested in answering his own question? Is he moving on to, to something else? Is he such a whimsical-like figure? Few people will pick up on why Xerxes asks the question that he does. But those of you, and there are many of you, in the fields of education, development, perhaps psychology, you might pick up, you might have already picked up on why Xerxes poses this question. I suggest, this is not something that I've found in, in the commentaries and whatnot, but um, something that's been you know, near and dear to my heart for a number of years as I've studied it and learned about it. But I suggest that verse, the question in verse 4 is not at all out of place. In fact, it addresses something very profound about the king and about how he was trying to honor Mordecai. Verse 4 is very likely an indication of Xerxes' learning style. I've written that down in your notes. Xerxes' learning style. You say, what, what do you mean? Well, admittedly, the next few points here are a little bit off topic, but I want you to bear with me. I think this is an important point. 
As I looked back over the course of the last number of chapters of Esther, all the way up until chapter 6, as you look back over the course of Esther, again and again, on the person of Xerxes, you can't help but see something remarkably similar. And it is that Xerxes is a very verbal, a very social, a very active kind of learner. He is often found in the book of Esther engaging individuals, engaging groups in conversation, seeking their opinion, even even almost deferring to what they have to say about the decision at hand. He's a king who loves to bounce ideas off of others to see what they think. Verse 4 is an indication of Xerxes' learning style. The reason his mind immediately goes from wanting to honor Mordecai to asking who's out in the courtyard is because Xerxes wants to verbally, socially, and actively bounce that idea off of a trusted counselor or friend. Now for all of us, but especially for those of you who are teachers in the fields of development and psychology, as you read and study and meditate on scripture, it might be a unique but worthwhile endeavor to try to identify the learning styles of the major characters therein. Or perhaps if you don't, if you're not as accustomed to that, maybe there are leadership styles. If you always are looking for leadership tips, I ask the question, how did the apostle Paul grow as a man? I suspect he was a very cerebral. He was a very logical man, a very word smart man. And that's why from Paul we get so much systematic doctrine. It was his strength. It was how God made him. How did Moses learn and mature? I suspect he was a very physically strong man, a physical man. He was a tactile man. He was what you might term in educational circles a kinesthetic kind of man. God gave him a staff. God appeared to him in a form of a a bush. Why? Moses was a very tactile learner. Very physical in orientation. What about the prophets? Ezekiel, Daniel. Might it be that the prophets were very visual, very imaginative, very spatial and inquisitive learners? After all, they often found themselves dreaming, having visions, asking questions about what they were seeing. And what about David? The Psalms alone suggest he was very musical very auditory, very poetic, very expressive kind of man. He was a man who was deeply in touch with his emotions. Identifying the learning style or leadership style maybe of Bible characters, what a unique study that would be. And then to ask yourself, how do I learn? How has God created me? How can my awareness of my own learning style help me in the future to grow as a man into a, into a mature man or woman of God? And what can I learn from Bible characters who are like me? <laughs> it's no coincidence that I personally am drawn to the Apostle Paul. I find myself resonating with him time and again. Why? Probably because we have similar learning styles, the way we process information and see the world. Maybe you should find some Bible characters that you go, wow, yeah, I really resonate with this character. Read more. Study them. See how God taught them and stretched them. Maybe those are ways God wants to teach and stretch you. 
What is your learning style? How has God created you to learn and to grow? You know, Jesus' teaching methods alone demonstrate that humans learn differently. There are times when Jesus was drawing in the sand, and then there were times when Jesus was reading from a scroll. There were times when he was teaching while walking, and then there were other times where he was teaching while standing in the synagogue or the temple court. He was a storyteller, and he was a man of logic and reason. Jesus was masterful at moving and adapting as he conveyed truth to society. We have to be like that too. It's not enough to suppose that the Sunday morning experience, which is heavily geared toward verbal and logical reasoning, it's, it's, uh, it's not enough if we want as a church to properly educate and disciple all who come through our doors. We need to be creative like our Lord. We need to get creative as we educate and disciple one another. We need more musical and artistic expression to communicate truth. We need more visual and aesthetic ways of learning. I've often said I really want more visual and aesthetic uh, components to our sanctuary. We've got some plans for that. We need to move. Kinesthetic. Kids need to move and feel and touch in order to learn. The best part, the best part about our Wednesday family night for me is the dinner beforehand. Why? Because our kids get to move and interact and develop relationships with one or with one another. It's very tactile. And I suggest that our Lord is teaching them, our children, just as much during the Wednesday family night dinner at the playground as when he is when we're sitting quietly in our Awana classes memorizing scripture. Why? Because our kids' kinesthetic cups have been made full, allowing them to thus learn scripture in a way that's more natural and fluid. All right. Just an aside. Let's get creative, CBC. Last point. Let's continue to be creative as we educate and disciple one another. I'm asking teachers, I'm asking those of you in the fields of development, give us ideas. Keep us thinking. I appreciate our children's director, Cassie, who's always thinking in these terms. She's always asking the question, how can we teach better? Because people learn differently. Back to our text in Esther. When Xerxes the king asks, who's in the courtyard? The narrator is hinting to us how the king learns how he processes information he learns socially he learns verbally he learns socially with one another interacting he needs to talk it out he often knows generally that something needs to be done back in chapter one he knew generally speaking that the old queen vashti needed to be confronted for her defiance he knew generally what needed to happen what needed to happen in chapter 1. But what did he do? He convened a council of wise men to discuss the matter and to make a decision. In this way, he was a deductive kind of learner, moving from the general to the specific. Here in chapter 6, Xerxes knows generally that he wants to honor Mordecai, but how? He's a verbal active deductive learner, so he calls out to the courtyard, bring someone in, I need help with this. Sure enough, there is one man there, Haman is in the outer court. Look at verse 5. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there. 
standing in the court. And the king said, good, let him come in. I want to talk to him. So Haman came in and the king asked, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Surely, surely Haman will have some ideas, thinks the king. Surely Haman will know. He's my first in in command. He's my prime minister. Surely he will know how to honor Mordecai. Needless to say, Haman does have an idea of how to to honor Mordecai. We learned about it in chapter 5. Pastor Tom preached last week. We learned that Haman's idea of honoring Mordecai is to hang him and to stick him on a stake for all to see. He wants to kill him. Haman hates Mordecai. He wants him dead. He wants Mordecai's people dead. Haman has come to the palace to share his idea of killing Mordecai with Xerxes at that precise moment. Haman has decided to ask the king that Mordecai be hanged. The king has decided to ask Haman how Mordecai might be honored. Unfortunately for Haman, the king speaks first. What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Well, I didn't get the first word in, thinks Haman. But hey, who cares? After all, whom would the king want to honor more than me? Haman is completely convinced that Mordecai is talking about him. He's completely convinced That he's going to win. Mordecai will soon be dead. And all of the Jews with him. But first, first Haman can put that on pause for just a moment. As he receives this tremendous honor by the king. And what better way than to receive a tremendous honor. Than to get to, you know, pick and choose the way in which you're going to be honored. Haman gets to choose the prize. What do you want, Haman? Haman is completely convinced he has won. Gary Tyrell, you may not know that name. He was a trombone player for Stanford University back in the early 1980s. He and his bandmates had traveled to Berkeley, Cal Berkeley, to face their arch rivals, the California Bears. And with four seconds left, Gary and the band were on cloud nine. The Stanford Cardinals had just kicked a field goal with four seconds left to take a 20 to 19 lead over the California Bears at Berkeley, no less. The winnings teams, the winning team's band always would take to the field after a win. And so naturally, Gary and his fellow bandmates, along with the sidelines, okay, of, of all the, of all the people of Stanford, were getting ready to, to seal the victory and to rush the field. Gary said, there was no thought in my mind that Stanford was going to lose. Sure enough, Stanford kicked off the ball with four seconds left. The clock, the band watched as the clock hit Zero, and they all ran out onto the field. You can see that there. Everybody, all the red there. That's the members of the Stanford band running onto the field to celebrate the victory.